Hey guys, this is Steve from Machinery Insider. Um, I'm pretty excited here today to dive more into the interesting world of used medical device industry. Unfortunately, the first minute got cut off with uh, you know our interviewee David Denholtz of Integrity Medical, um, but you know we got most of the conversation. So excited for you guys to hear it. All right, let's go. A track. Uh, academic track actually to uh, believe it or not to be an English professor and uh, you know always had enjoyed um, academia and enjoyed uh, you know that that part of my brain but um, I came from a long line of salesmen my father uh, was a salesman owned his own company my grandfather was a salesman and I think his father was actually a salesman. So it was kind of in my blood. And I'd done, I'd done some sales, some telemarketing stuff when I was in high school. So I got to New York and I was in graduate school. And uh, like a lot of people today and back then, I was, you know, a starving student. So <laughs> I, need to make, I need to make some money. And, uh, you know, I was looking for something where I could work part-time. And I'd done the telemarketing thing before. So... I answered an ad in the New York Times and said, um, part-time or full-time medical sales. And I said, okay, well, give that a try. So I went for the interview and I got hired on the spot and worked for this company part-time. It turned out they were purchasing um, used medical equipment, mainly imaging equipment from hospitals all over the U.S. and reselling it to China and other countries and some to dealers in the United States. So I kind of learned to trade there. Um, my boss was tough, very tough. And uh, I eventually um, decided that uh, it was a, a very difficult environment to, to be in day after day. So I, I, I quit without knowing what I was going to do next. Mm -hmm. um, and, to, had, and to take one step back here, uh, yeah, and so what at a high level, what would be, what is medical imaging equipment, right? And what is it mainly used for? I'm sure everybody knows what it is, but just the, the, you know, the nomenclature, they may not know exactly. So, sure. so we're talking about, uh, MRI scanners, CAT scanners, um, X-ray ultrasound, anything that uh, is used to make an image with the body. Gotcha. Uh, that's diagnostic imaging in a nutshell. Cool. And, you know, when you kind of, and this was in the paper you found the ad? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, New York Times. You know, back, <laughs> nice. way back in the Stone Age, you know, no internet. Um, you look at the want ads in the paper and call up and say, hey, uh, got a job and go for an interview. And that was, <laughs> yeah, and that was the way you found jobs back then. And what's interesting, um, you know, is uh, I, I think getting to kind of, what you're actually selling. I'm curious, did you learn a lot about, you know, the sourcing in this business in the used machinery business? The, the thing that I'm trying to shed light on is, and I think that's the story of any kind of, we'll call it flip, right? Is buying something at under, under market, under value and being able to sell it for higher prices, you know, and I, again, in, in simplistic terms is, is what you're doing, but to find that deal, you know, and like you said, that first job was 
this guy essentially buying up equipment from hospitals, right, and then selling it out, outside of the country was, was the normal model. How was he able to, was it concentrated in the hospitals around New York or, or was he able, was, is there like an, like an auction place or, or, or some sort of, you know, back then of where everyone, every hospital would say, Hey, we, we want to get rid of this stuff. Or can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah. So I think back then, I mean, this is, believe it or not, this is 1988 and this is when actually fax machines first started coming into vogue as a way to communicate in, you know, business to business. So he would fax out a list of equipment um, to hospitals, and we'd also cold call hospitals. Mm. Um, and uh, he had a list of all the hospitals in the U.S. He had a computer database, and uh, he'd do printouts and hand us a sheet with a bunch of hospitals and hand us a sheet with a bunch of uh, dealers he had found who, all over the country who had you know previously purchased equipment from him. And we just would call. You know, We would call hospitals. We would call dealers and we would just try to, Hey, I found this machine at this place. Call these three guys, see if they're interested mm-hmm. and try, try to establish the price. There was no pricing established. So you pretty much, you know, you kind of had to figure it out as you went. How do you know then, you know, were, I mean, were you actually going to see the equipment after this, you know, light negotiation took place on the phone or, you know, cause what if it wasn't, as is the business, uh, you know, was as advertised, shall I say? Yeah. So, um, back then, you know, the big phrase was as is, where is. Mm -hmm. So that, that's that's the way you were selling it. Hey, I talked to this hospital, they got this, uh, uh, cat scanner and it's a 1982 GE 8,800 which would mean something to your ancient viewers out there like me. But, um, and they say it's working great. Um, it was recently serviced. They changed the x-ray tube a year ago. And those are the details I have. What do you pay me for it? The guy says, well, I'll pay uh, 15,000. Just throwing a number out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I say, okay. And go back to the hospital and offer them less than $15,000. And if they say yes, then you call the other guy back and say, hey, we got a deal. I'll send you a contract. You go out and inspect it. He would maybe fly out or have somebody fly out, look at it, wherever it was. If the machine was good, he'd send you money and go pick it up. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, very interesting. So you you leave there. You're like, I, you know, I can't work with this guy. Um, next step not really knowing the plan, right? If I understand correctly, then, then, you know, then what's next? Well, my wife had a, had a good, a good job, um, full-time job. And she usually got home before me. I usually came home late and cause I was working my mm-hmm. butt off the place trying to make money. And, uh, she came home and I was sitting at the kitchen table and she's like, what are you doing home? And I said, Oh, quit the job. And she's like, hallelujah. I'm so glad you quit it. It's a terrible job, blah, blah, blah. Uh, by the way, the guy, I won't mention his name, but the guy who I work for is now a friend of mine. He's, we're, we're very friendly now. He's still in the business. But uh, going back to your question, I, I, she said, well, what are you going to do next? I said, I have no idea. 
I don't know, look for another job, I guess. But by this time I was out of graduate school and I turned down, you know, a teaching job uh, because I was making more money working, selling medical equipment. Right. She said, well, why don't you uh, do it on your own? I said, ah, I don't know about that. She said, well, you know, you probably have some phone numbers memorized, right? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty good at memorizing numbers. So I said, just give some people a call. So I started calling people, you know, I had like maybe four or five numbers memorized and um, just start calling people and saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. And they all offered me jobs. Oh, come work for us, you know. I moved to Staten Island, come moved to Pittsburgh, wherever. And I didn't really want to move. So I said, well, thank you for the offer. Um, I'm thinking maybe I'll do it on my own. What do you think? And they were all like, yeah, you should do it on your own. Just start small. Just, you know, you're working out of your house and your apartment. But see what happens. <laughs> Pick up the phone. And, and, and so then how did you, outside of the few people that you knew in the business, obviously, were you brokering at first? So just oh, kind of, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, it was total, total uh, broker. Uh, and this company I worked for was total brokering for the most part. Um, so yeah, I, I just started calling hospitals in the New York area and, you know, calling up and saying, Hey, um, this is David. I didn't even have a company name at that point. Um, and, uh, I buy medical equipment. Um, what do you have? Do you have anything you're getting rid of? And, oh yeah, we got this machine and okay, can I get the information on it? And I take down the information and, you know, then think of who I could call. And if I couldn't think of who to call, I'd call one of those people that were my buddies whose numbers I memorized and say, hey, who would you call if you had an ATL ultrasound? Mm -hmm. Oh, call uh, John Waterhalter. He buys those. Oh, okay. Do you have his number? Yeah, here, let me give you his number. <laughs> and I called John Waterhalter, who, by the way, he was the first guy I sold the machine to. Huh. Um, hey, John, if you're listening. Um, but, um, yeah, and then, you know, I, I just kept doing that and eventually, you know, after probably three or four months, um, you know, I was actually making almost as much money or probably the same money I was making when I left. Wow. That other, so yeah, it worked out well. So you're in New York still then working out of the apartment, kind of hustling, doing some deals. And at, at what point do you guys decide to move down South? Or was there more of a story in between then? Yeah, I mean, we, we gradu I graduated to hire an employee and we, uh, we got our first warehouse and we started bringing equipment in to stock and started fixing stuff. And, you know, we hired an engineer to work on the equipment. And then um, in 96, we'd had our second kid who had cold-induced uh, cold asthma. So mm -hmm. he didn't do too well in the cold weather. And we'd already been talking about possibly moving south. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were going to move to Miami because that's where my wife wanted to live. You know, it's great cultural environment and food and all that kind of good stuff. But, you know, we moved, moved down and the prices were crazy. My parents lived here in Fort Myers. They said, oh, come to Fort Myers and look at houses. And I was like, ah, really don't want to live in Fort Myers. I grew up there, wanted to get out. But I started looking at houses and I was like wow these prices are like half the price of uh, what uh, Miami prices are so we ended up buying a house here I still had my office in New York and uh, I would travel back and forth uh, initially like every week one week on one week in Florida one week in New York hmm. and then actually um, you know one week out of the month 
and then eventually, you know, two or three days in the month, and then eventually I was able to close my place in New York. I had a uh, warehouse, big office, and uh, as it turned out, I mean, one of my employees ended up moving to Florida uh, to join me, so I had to kind of, you know, basically start all over again, which was, which was, you know, fine. It was, it was a fresh start, and uh, you know, it it uh, it took to the it took me to the next level, I guess. And at what point, I think you, you kind of skipped over that, there was a need from the client sometimes where it was as is, whereas. Then you start buying things, but then the client says, hey, you know, um, can, can, you, can you make this thing work or calibrate towards, you know, what I need? When was that kind of added, you know, added value or added service was like, you know what, we, 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 we need an engineer. We, we need someone that kind of fix some of this stuff or, you know, it's worth it to do so. When did you kind of, and, and was yes, that so, a full refurbish? What was the? Yeah, so we had, you know, in New York, when we had our warehouse, we had a number of local engineers that would come and work on projects, you know, as needed. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'd get a GE CAT scanner in and I had my buddy who worked on GE CAT scanners in, in the New York area. And he would come in for, you know, three or four days, set it up, get it working, and then I could sell it, you know, as a fully functional system, you know, that I knew was working. We'd fix anything that was broken. We'd paint it. We'd do whatever we needed to do. And then when I moved to Florida, like I said, I kind of started from scratch. Right. And um, I, uh, you know, I found a similar situation with people here. And then eventually, as I got established, you know, I hired an engineer and hired another one, another one. And, you know, just kind of built up the uh, that refurbishing part of the business where we could do it all in house and, you know, do it using our own employees, which is preferable than than hiring people as, you know, as needed. Sure. And is that you got more control of the product? Right. That makes sense. Is that um what would you say percentage of your business uh in terms of refurbishment and you know, just the as is? I think very little of what we sell today is as is. I mean occasionally, you know, I'll come up with a machine and it, I know the perfect buyer for it, a dealer, and I'll call them up and say, Hey, I got a machine and in Ohio, uh, you know, I think you'd be interested in, I don't want to take it into stock and, you know, I'll just broker it from the hospital like I used to. But most of the time we buy the stuff, we bring it into inventory, we pre-stage it, we set it up, we upgrade it um, and refurbish it. And, you know, we get the right buyer comes along and, you know, we have the equipment which we can sell, including installation and, and warranty. So... Mm-hmm. You know, that's obviously where you've got your biggest risk, but you've also got your biggest margin. So, you know, to take on the installation warranty, um, you know, can be daunting sometimes. Sure. But you've got a you've got a bigger margin, you've got a bigger spread, and uh, you know, it's it's worth it, especially if, you know, you're competent in that product and you've got parts in stock, which we do for most everything we sell. And, you know, good support from, you know, internal staff that we have and external staff, if we, you know, if we run into a problem that's weird, we've never seen, you know, somebody can bounce an idea off of. So, Gotcha. So now with uh, the equipment that you have, what would you say roughly, you know, the inventory that you've been able to build up since being, you know, let's call it 
from since Florida, where you started to rebuild the business. Where where are you guys at now? Well, I think I think when we first got uh, the place you visited here in Fort Myers, the place where now I think we first got this space, which is large. You know, we thought, okay, we're going to be inventorying more equipment. We're going to be putting more, you know, complete systems in stock. But the business has changed, I'd say, in the last five or six years where, um, you know, having a large inventory is not necessarily advantageous um, just because uh, the prices on certain products are somewhat uh, unstable. Things can change quickly. And um, it's almost more advantageous to just buy when you see a good deal, but Mm -hmm. not buy just to have inventory to sell. Um, And then, you know, if you go out and you sell something um, and you've got an order, but you've got two or three months to fill the order, you could sell them the existing product or you could go out and shop around and find something better or something less expensive um, for that same order. So a lot of times because we've got these long lead times on these deals, we're able to, you know, work, um, work based upon what we have and what we know is say coming up in the market. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily have to have five of each thing in stock. I see. I see. Gotcha. And I guess where, where do you see, um, you know, the business and industry going? Um, you know, there's been a lot of consolidations in the mm-hmm. last uh, 10 years. And I think that is not going to change. So I think the smaller kind of mom and pop referred companies are becoming rare. And I, I think that, you know, the bigger companies are becoming kind of the standard. And I think, you know, the brokerage business is getting tougher. I mean, it has has been getting tougher for years. One of the reasons we kind of transitioned away from it. Gotcha. Gotcha. uh, Yeah. I mean, that's those, those trends are just going to continue. Any, uh, I know walking through the, uh, the warehouse, there was always some, some certain interesting things that you, you happened to pick up along the way. So what, what for, you know, the audience, what, what's one of those, uh, you know, kind of funky items that came with uh, something else. <laughs> I mean, we've always got these, what I call antiques, you know, ancient stuff, which, you know, you go to a hospital and you're buying something and you say, can you take this stuff too? And, you know, sometimes you end up taking things that are ancient and you have to throw away. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a constantly evolving um, um inventory of stuff that needs to be thrown away in, you know, not, not as great a number as the things that we can refurbish and resell. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that when you were here was, uh, destined for the scrap pile, let's say. Gotcha. All right. Well, what's the, um, where's the furthest you've ever sold to? Um, I sold uh, an X-ray machine to Nepal. Oh wow! How did how did that happen? Um, a guy that I had met in New York like fifteen years before from Nepal. I'd given him my business card. He all of a sudden called me out of the blue. He said, "I, I had your business card. 
your number's different, but I have a friend um, who needs an x-ray machine in Nepal. And I said, okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, remarkably, the guy really did need an, a machine because a lot of times you get these calls and it's like, okay, well, the guy has, you know, no money or he's looking to you to donate it, which we have done. Um, but yeah, it, it worked out. And uh, I also sold uh, a mammography machine to um, Africa. I'm, I just forgot the name. It's one of these smaller countries and I just forgot the name of it. But um, yeah, I mean, we've sold stuff. I, I sold an MRI to Iceland. Um, oh, very cool. Back in the 90s. And um, do you yeah. coordinate that uh, logistics or, you know, in these three deals or was it? Yeah, well, we'll coordinate the logistics. The only thing we can't coordinate is the importation. So once it gets to their country, they have to be able to uh, do the paperwork to get it in into the country. But we'll, sure. do, we'll do everything external, the shipping and the crating and, you know, whatever paperwork is required from our side. I gotcha. I gotcha. Cool. Well, we got to talk about a few more things before the, the, the time runs out here. Um, I just remembered the country. I'm sorry. Oh, I, what I, is the country? I, uh, Burkina Faso. Oh, Burkina Faso. That's, uh, I think that's on the uh, south or the northwest side by Senegal, right? I think so. Uh, maybe, yeah. I think it's more, it's more central. Oh, it's more I, central. I okay. I, okay. It might be landlocked. But anyway, yeah, we sold the first mammography, refurbished mammography machine to Burkina Faso. <sighs> okay. That's very cool. <laughs> very cool. It's not obscure, I know, but I found it interesting at the time. Um, well, and normally we don't go into too many hobbies. We, we, we do have a rapid-fire question at the end. Um, five questions you, you can pass on a few because I have ten. But we got to talk about the collection of this guy, for everyone who obviously doesn't know um, yet. Yeah. We, I, I will deem him and might even put that in the title as the pinball wizard. You're a fanatic, right? So, um, and, and let's just, the audience, let's give you a little picture. Um, and David being very, very modest, I think at some point asked me if I, if I liked pinball. And as a kid, I love it. I loved it. My grandparents had, uh, had a, had a machine and, was always upset. We got to talking about it, and he said, "Well, uh, you know, I got to, I got to show you something." I was like, oh, well, well, "Sure." Um, and we leave the office, and there is an elevator, and we go upstairs one floor, I believe, a, a floor maybe two, and he goes, "Just wait, just wait here. It's dark. I'm not sure. Uh, I've went to the wrong place in Fort Myers, and my life is at stake." <laughs> or, um. I'm about to see the coolest thing I've ever seen. Flips on the lights, and there is now memory. Sir, how how many machine pinball machines? I think we have about 120. 120 machines, and we're talking all of the you know the classics, Twilight Zone, um, the the Who game. Um, God, there's just so many so many classic ones that you know. I'm 35, so most people probably uh, in in from from around Chicago for sure, since all of the the, the big manufacturers are there, uh, know all those classics. Um, 
Adam's family. And it was, I was like a kid in a candy store. It was fantastic. Um, but we also got to give a plug because, you know, you're going to be holding the world championship. Is that in November? Is that now? It's uh, now been moved to May of May. Uh, 2022. Yeah. Okay. Well, that I might be able to make then. <laughs> um, just incredible place. Uh, and what what got you into maybe it's just the machinery what what got you into the the hobby though well it started innocently enough you know i i had moved into the house i'm in now and the previous house i moved to in fort myers i didn't really have that much space but moved into a new place um i had a two-car garage and i decided my kids were pretty young i decided you know this would be cool to fix this up as a game room so my wife agreed, and we bought a ping pong table. And I said, you know, it'd be cool to get a, a pinball machine. She said, yeah, that would be cool. So I went on uh, the internet, and I found a guy locally that was selling an Adams Family machine. And never really played an Adams Family, but I heard it was, like, you know, one of the best machines ever made. So I went to the guy's house, and I ended up buying the machine, brought it home and played my kids played it a few times but i was you know i really enjoyed it i remember when i was a kid i played pinball and um you know it was it was it was cool so a few months later i was like well maybe i'll get a second machine and uh ended up buying a second machine and then a third and then and um one of the machines broke and i started reaching out to figure out who could fix a broken pinball machine in fort myers and i found a community of people and uh, who collect machines. And next thing you know, um, you know, I was into this pinball hobby. When, I, when we moved into the building that you visited, um, there was upstairs mezzanine, completely unfinished, just like a concrete deck. Um, so when we first moved in, we put all our parts and stuff up here. And there's an elevator, so you can get up and down. And um, my one of my buddies at the time said, hey, you know, we should put a workshop up there we could we could bring a couple of our pinball machines up and just we could work on machines hang out drink a couple of beers whatever and um i said that's a cool idea let's do it so we built a small room had a couple uh air conditioning units up there and um next thing you know we started reaching out to other people within the state of florida and saying hey would you guys like to have a tournament people were like yeah that sounds cool so <laughs> we held our first tournament. We had like 20 people show up. We had like maybe 10, 12 machines at the time. And it became a thing. People just wanted a, us to do more tournaments. We started doing more tournaments. We uh, ended up incorporating as a non-profit uh, in 2011. Uh, so we're a 501c3. And uh, just through holding tournaments and things like that, we, you know, we built up some money enough to expand. And we expanded it. And then several years later, we were able to expand it again to what you saw, which is about 5,000 square feet. And it represents a collection of my machines and about uh, nine or 10 other people who have uh, machines that are here. And, uh, you know, we're pretty well known throughout the small world of pinball, it's a small world. And uh, they chose us to do the, uh, the world championship. Oops actually in 2019 uh, or 2020, but because of COVID, it got pushed back and then pushed back again. So in 2022, we'll have 
the 64 best players in the world from 20 different countries here uh, playing for the world world championships. I mean, amen to that, you know, and I, I, this is also one of the interesting things about this business. Um, yeah, just in machinery and equipment in general is, heck, you know, you can have a lot of autonomy in your life. You can, you know, have a, a, a lot of financial success as well. And, you know, it's, um, hell, I mean, I, I it's interesting because a lot of people in the industry, um, they have a lot of particular hobbies and, uh, Man, you know, one of the coolest ones is is definitely having a pinball hobby. So, good thing that uh, good thing that I was able to to come by. Hopefully, and I can come back and and maybe. Yeah. So that would well, be cool. Well, it's a bit nerdy, but you know what I what I discovered was is there really is a connection between the pinball and the refurbished medical equipment because, as you probably gathered, these machines that we have are from the nineteen. 19- 60s all the way up to current machines but they all break they all need to be refurbished they all need to be repaired you need to find parts you need to get them playing reliably and so there's a lot of connection to what i do in my my you know my day job so to speak um in getting these machines you know refurbished and working Mm -hmm. Um, so you know there's there's some connection there absolutely absolutely um all right so time for the quick questions um and again, pass if you if you'd like. Uh, we'll start off with an easy one. I don't I don't know if you're a reader, but do you have like a, a favorite book or a book that comes to mind, and and you know why you like it? Oh my gosh! Uh, well, that's a hard one, but I always say the same thing, um, which is um, Hundred Years of Solitude. Okay, not heard of it. What what is it about? It's uh, takes place in. Um, takes place in South America. It's by a, a Nobel Prize winning writer, uh, uh, um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Okay. And it's just, it's one of those books that once you read it, you know, it's fiction. I mean, mostly I read nonfiction, but this book I read when I was younger and I read it again recently and it, it's, it holds up. It's just one of those great books that kind of changes the way you think about things. Awesome. Okay. I don't, I don't want to describe too much about it. You have to kind of pick it up and read it. All right. Well, I'll put it on my list. I'll put it on my list. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? Oh, my God. Um, I think I think the hardest thing that I've ever done is a cumulative thing, and I think I've only realized it in the last few years, which is to kind of – keep your life in balance mm-hmm. when I first started my company I worked you know 24 7 and I just never quit and then you know as I got as, as I got older I realized you know there has to be a balance so I think the hardest thing in life is really finding that balance and it, it's you know it's precarious because you get it you know the balance between your work your family your hobbies your interests um, your obligations and um, finding that balance, I think, is it's a constant juggling act. And I'm sure you know, you, you've experienced it as well as I mm-hmm. have, being an entrepreneur and a family guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely speak to that. Um, okay, another easy one. You got a favorite uh, a movie or series? 
right up there. Okay, good. I, I want to see the new pre. Well, I, I heard it was okay. Yeah, Saints of uh, Newark. Yeah, it, it's it's good. I mean, if you like The Sopranos, it's good. It's I love not, Sopranos. It's not because it's the same it's David. Not, uh, yeah, David Chase. David yeah, Chase. It's 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 definitely worth seeing. I mean, okay. I I actually want to see it again because. All of the characters are portrayed, obviously, by younger people being prequel. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to see the see the characters as their younger selves. So I'm going to go... I'm actually going to watch it again. I have a feeling I might like it better the second time. Okay. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, more philosophical. Something that society believes is true that you don't necessarily believe is true. For example... I don't believe that the more education you get or higher education you get, the more successful you become. doesn't equate to that. can, but that's what society would, would sell you. Um, what, what, what about yourself? I think I would need to think about that one. Okay. Pass. <laughs> we'll pass on that. Um, a fun one. If you were an animal, who would you be? Uh, well, I probably would be a dog. I love dogs. I've had <laughs> dogs my whole life. Right. And, uh, they got a good dogs life. Have, dogs have it good. My yeah. dogs have it good. Yes, <laughs> same with mine. Same with mine. Um, assuming that you had the economic resources, you know, the unlimited economic resources... What's the one thing you wish to do? Well, um, I guess sell my company and travel the world. Travel the world. Amen to that. What's the coolest country that you would like to go to that you haven't been? I would love to um, go to Vietnam and Cambodia. Okay. Okay. I have been to one of those three twice. Vietnam is a very, very cool place. I'm one of my favorite places. Um, I'm a my, big fan of Anthony Bourdain. And, uh, oh, God. Who isn't? You know? you know, that was his favorite place to travel to. It's, um, it's very... Have you been to Italy? No. Never been to Italy. Okay. Well, the greatest part about Italy, which is also the one of the reasons that I love Vietnam is each city is extremely different and unique than any other city in the same country. Right. So you go to Vietnam and you can go to Ho Chi Minh or Saigon, which is the, the, is the city. Right. And remind you, you know, if you're not familiar, there's a hundred million people in Vietnam, 20, 25 million of them. So a quarter of the population is, 25 or under, so it's now a very young population. Um, and then you can go to Hoi An, which is like, you know, much calmer of a city. Um, or I should say, I'm thinking of, there's Hoi An and Hanoi. Hanoi is still a city, but calmer. Hoi An is actually a very interesting city because it's been conquered by and ruled by many different cultures, Japanese, French, the main ones. So when you go to the city, the the look of the city is has both influences. It's quite interesting. Um, 
kind of polar opposites when you have the French and the Japanese architecture. Um, so it's a really cool city or country because, yeah, it's very similar to Italy in that you get different food, um, completely different scenery, and uh, just different culture, really. So, um, well, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going at some point. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, compare notes. Let's. <laughs> yeah, my my wife has been. She's backpacked through Cambodia and and Laos. I shouldn't say backpacked because she was in her mid twenties, so she wasn't that much of a uh, on a budget to. Uh, but she has seen some 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 great places there and you know whenever you're 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 ready to go you, you do need time that is the thing yeah, yeah you that's, need that's been the problem is when you own your own business it's tough to take you know you need a month basically two weeks i was gonna say a month but then i i said two weeks you're, you're already you're already doing the whole uh balance thing well you know i will say it's the best to go usually in the winter because it's still um, 85 out or low eighties. Right. And, but it's not cause it's humid all in Asia. Basically all Southeast Asia is very, very humid. Um, remember I grew up and I live in Fort Myers. So yeah, but even humidity don't bother me. <laughs> it, it, I will say the rays are much stronger there. At least it feels yeah. as such. Um, and you're also in a constant jungle that may or may not have air conditioning. Yep. So it's, it, you want to go in the winter time. Um, but yeah, be happy to, to share when you, when you, when you, when you want to go, um, we'll wrap up here. I appreciate the time. I'm glad we could finally connect. Um, you know, and hopefully, uh, in, in May I could, uh, could come by, but, uh, thanks yeah, David I, for, you should, you should definitely come by. It's going to be, uh, uh, streamed on Twitch, but I think it'd be more fun to see it live. Oh, real nice. Awesome. Well, thanks, bud, and uh, have, have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, bye-bye. See you.